Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Thinking Fan Football Club Premier League Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. Today, we're joined by soccer analyst Harshal Patel and professional footballer Dre Fortune. I'm host, Chris Mumford. Bella Chow. We're sponsored by the Premier League Guide, a 300-page book for those mad about football, Moneyball for Football, Opposition Analysis, plus eye candy. The current update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Match day 22 and 23 is when the dust is starting to settle. Yes, the league slammed yet another 20 matches in during seven days. Has the league settled at the top and the bottom? Is it time to focus on Champions League and Europa spots only? We do a deep dive. I think we need to start the conversation today around Liverpool and Man City. Harshel, can you kind of give us a a recap of the game from a tactical perspective? What was going on there that maybe the casual football fan might not have seen? Um, Liverpool started with the 4-3-3 that they've almost exclusively played under under Klopp. Especially this season, he's been re- very reluctant to change to 4-2-3-1, although he did it a few times earlier this season when they had, say, Diogo Jota available. They've obviously not had him, so it, it was a straight 4-3-3 for Liverpool. Um, City also started with a 4-3-3, but the main sort of um, talking point there was, again, the fact that they went without a recognised striker, which Pep has been doing for the last few games. Um, he's he's not really started Gabriel Jesus apart from a couple of games and Sergio Aguero's obviously had a lot of injury issues so he's also not played too much so Pep's solution to this has been to play a number of players as a sort of false nine and uh, on on Sunday it was Phil Foden's turn to start the game as the sort of nominal centre forward but he obviously wasn't playing as a centre forward he was more of a false nine I think the first half was really it was really cagey, really. It was like a chess match. There wasn't too much that either team was giving away. Foden, for example, I mean, there, there wasn't too much space anywhere in the midfield or even behind the defensive line. And I mean, conventional wisdom would have, I mean, you would have thought that with Liverpool playing Henderson and, and Fabinho, who are both midfielders at centre-back, Pep would have probably started with Jesus, given that, I mean, you'd want to try and test them with a natural centre-forward making those sort of movements that... Uh, you know, you don't really get from a player like Foden who tends to drop deep and combine. But uh, in the second half, I mean, right from the start, Pep changed things. He he moved to a 4-2-3-1 or more like a 4-4-2 in that sense with um, Gundogan moving a little bit deeper to play alongside Rodri, who was playing as a single pivot earlier. And uh, uh, Bernardo Silva moving a little bit higher to play as a sort of number 10. And that had an immediate effect on the way City progressed the ball, the way they pressed. We saw two, I mean, Allison make two pretty dreadful errors. But I mean, yes, there were errors from the goalkeeper himself. But a lot of it was down to the way in which City were pressing Liverpool and they weren't allowing them to be able to play out of the back. And that the way in which they were able to get an extra attacker higher up the pitch through the 4-2-3-1 rather than the 4-3-3 did help them in this regard. And yeah, I think Phil Foden needs to be, I mean, he should definitely be on the plane for England for the Euros. He's been absolutely brilliant in, not just in this game, over the last few weeks. And it's telling that Pep played him for the full 90. He didn't take him off, which, I mean, tells you that he, he's now begun to trust him in the big games. 
and we saw the impact that Foden had. He scored obviously the br- a brilliant goal for the fourth goal, but the assist for um, I think it was uh, Gundogan, the second goal that City scored, just, uh, the way to be able to glide into the ball from that sort of right-sided area in the box and then dink it to to Gundogan to finish. Uh, and yeah, he was just all over the place, especially when he was moved out to the right. But I think even when he was playing as a number ten slash number nine, he did really well. He was uh, especially against Fabinho. He was able to drag him into positions where Fabinho was really uncomfortable. Uh, there were moments where he was popping up on the left wing. I remember somewhere around the fifty-fifth minute or so, he he sent in a brilliant cross, which sort of Sterling was behind by just a couple of yards. I mean, had that cross gone to Sterling, it would have been the pass of the game. So. Yeah, Phil Foden, I think, deservedly man of the match, along with, I mean, there were other, obviously a lot of other players like Gundogan um, and even, I'd say, Joao Cancelo, who did really well. But yeah, Foden was the absolute man of the match and showed why he he's probably England's next big star. So, Dre, Pep said in the post-game um, interview that F- Foden wasn't making the correct runs when he was playing the nine. But then once he moved him over to the winger, uh, he, he knew exactly what to do. And, and guess what? He made an even bigger and bigger impact. Help us understand, how does a pro player not really know what the right runs to make, uh, particularly at that level? And I know he's only 20 years old, but help us unpack what Pep's comment was about that. Uh, I think, obviously, at that level, the the timing of things are so important, so when you're playing out of position, it's not as natural to make specific movements for you. So maybe you're, you're thinking about it. You have to think, okay, the ball's here. Now I have to make this movement. And that slight hesitation can, can affect the whole play and, and, and you'll be late. So um, I think that's definitely a big part of it. But then also, you know, when, when he goes back out wide, like I said, like it's just more natural for him to be out there. And that's just what he's so accustomed to and what he's been doing for so long that those movements are just, he's not even thinking about where he needs to be or what he needs to do. It's just focus on the ball and then, and, and what's next. And I think it, obviously it shows it's, it's much smoother. And I mean, I think regardless, he had like Harshaw said, he had a really good impact on the game. Um, obviously he had the the shot for the first goal that Allison saved for Gundogan and then he had the assist and then he scored what I thought was a brilliant goal. Just in, I mean, my, you know, I've spoken to people about the goal and everyone talks about how well struck the shot was and whatnot, but I just, I was so impressed with how quickly he shifted the ball and shot. It was it was in one step for him to shift the ball inside and then shoot. And I think that catches – it obviously catches Robertson off guard, and you can see it catches Allison as well because he doesn't even get his hands up by the time that the, the shot's gone past him. So, yeah, I think – I mean, it's – I think it's a, it's a fair statement from Pep, but I think it's also very understood um, – it's not very easy for people to adjust to different positions. Some people do it way better than others, but he's young and he'll continue to learn and definitely pick up on things the more he plays in that position. And candidly, he hasn't gotten many starts at that nine position anyways. Um, And I have to imagine in game situations and practice situations are quite different. How about your take on Gundogan? You know, he misses, I mean, does an exceptional job missing that PK. Um, I don't know if he, I don't know if he could miss that badly, even if he tried, but the fact that he bounced back and scored two goals, walk me through the, the, what a player has to do to kind of regroup and then 
be able to really bring it and, and really overcompensate for a, just a horrendous error. Oh, well, obviously in, in that moment, you, the immediate feeling is, you know, disappointment, you're upset, feel like you're letting your team down. And naturally as a competitor, you want to, you want to correct that. So, I mean, obviously with the goals he scored they're they're both tap-ins, which, you know, you don't take away from the goal, but that's just his determination and his effort saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it into the box. I'm going to get there. I'm going to do what I can to try to correct the mistake that he's made. And obviously he's done that. And uh, when you're able to do that, um, you know, he goes back and he's joking on Twitter about the penalty miss and whatnot, uh, you know, talking about the Super Bowl. And, he, you know, you, you can do that when you when you go through the steps to correct it. So he's been in tremendous form recently in terms of goal scoring and just helping the team. And obviously he's, he's a world-class player. Um, playing their style in terms of trying to keep the ball and, and progressing the ball forward. And I, I was watching them very closely over the game and I was really impressed with his performance as well. Him, Sterling, Foden, thought they were all exceptional on the day. Well, I will tell you, let, let's switch our attention to uh, those wearing the red jerseys. Tiago is clearly an absolute pleasure to watch, and he seems to do things in ways that other folks can't. can't. I, do you feel like he's it doesn't seem like it's manifest his efforts have manifested in Liverpool's results. Do you have a read Dre on how that can be? I mean, he seems like such an competent player, but for whatever reason, the it's just the goals aren't happening. Right. He mm-hmm. seems to be more is highlighted about the, the amount of yellow cards he's getting because he can get a little chippy, uh, uh, at times, what's your take on how his clearly an excellent player is not quite jibing in the Liverpool system yet? So my personal opinion, and this is off of limited watching, but I, I honestly, I believe he slowed them down a bit. And by that, I mean, I think Liverpool is very good in terms of counterattacking situations and being able to exploit space and behind defenses and whatnot. And that's not necessarily Thiago's strength. Thiago's gonna he's gonna receive the ball, he's gonna connect his passes and he's gonna slowly progress up the field, which, you know, I mean he's learned that at Barcelona, he did it at Bayern Munich. And I think that's contrasting a little bit with the strengths of Liverpool. I think guys like Mane and Salah are are better when they're, you know, running forward and, and making these runs in behind. It's not that Thiago can't pick these passes, but it's just not his first, you know, it's not his primary look. So I think, I think to sum it up, he's just slowed them down a bit and slowed down their game a little bit, which I think is affecting them because now they have to break teams down, which, I mean, it's not easy. I mean, even a team like Manchester City, who we know does it so well, I think they struggled with that in the game. I think they were good in the, in the defensive third, progressing the ball. They were good in the middle third. And as they got to attacking third, I thought, you know, they slowed down a little bit. And so I think we're seeing the same thing for Liverpool. And I think that's where they're struggling. Arshel, what's your take on that question, on Thiago? Yeah, I think Dre's absolutely nailed it in terms of what Thiago's sort of the the impact he's had in Liverpool. But that's been a deliberate impact in the sense that there's a reason why Jurgen Klopp moved for Thiago. And I mean, the fact that Liverpool brought him in is because Klopp wanted Liverpool to evolve in terms of the way they've been playing. I mean, this is it's what Klopp's been here for about longer than five years now. So They've been playing that that sort of heavy metal, aggressive, hard-running style of football for a while. Obviously, there's been a lot of 
change in terms of the personnel that he's had at the club but let's say over the last two two and a half seasons or so the the personnel has been the the personnel at liverpool have been more or less constant during this time of success that they've had where they've won the champions league and the league so it's been a conscious decision by klopp to bring thiago in so that liverpool are able to control games better in terms of possession and so that they are able to break down teams who sit back against them because playing a, a hard running and sort of aggressive style that liverpool have been playing so far was proving to be a bit of a problem against the teams that are sitting deep against them because there was no space in behind for the likes of salah mane to run into so thiago was brought in also again you need we need to remember that uh, i mean it's it's a good way to conserve energy as well right in, in, on the pitch where if you have the ball you you're not running around usually as much so it's a good way for you to conserve energy and then use it at specific bursts and thiago is again a master of being able to increase the tempo of the game when needed so that was the intention and thiago fits perfectly in that sense the issue is has been that he's not played with liverpool's first choice midfield there's been just one game the entire season where thiago fabinho and jordan henderson which in my and i believe i mean most people would call that liverpool's first choice midfield at the moment there's just been one game that they've started together which was the merseyside derby where thiago went off injured with uh, when he was uh, tackled by richarlison who got a red card and that was obviously also the game where virgil van dijk uh, got injured and uh, is now out for the season so it's the fact that he's not been able to play with the right kind of players around him because i can totally imagine and also and that's also had an impact in the sense that thiago is playing as the number 6 in that three man midfield ideally fabinho would be the 6 playing as a defensive midfielder and thiago would be playing as the eight higher up the pitch from where he could then sort of um you know feed the balls to the likes of fermino salah mane if you have curtis jones next to him he could sort of combine with him if you got henderson henderson can provide energy as well as sort of cover for alexander arnold going down the right who thiago could potentially find with a pass over the top so all of those dynamics are missing because of the just because of the injuries and the absences that liverpool have had so Yeah. With regard to Thiago specifically, I think that's the issue that he's not had a chance to play with players who would have sort of um suited his game and I mean and he's also obviously playing I think a little bit out of position or rather not in his optimum position in this Liverpool side. I got gotcha. you. Well, I do want to give a shout out because I think Virgil van Dijk should probably get a little worried. because i think that jordan henderson is an outstanding outstanding center back i mean some of the distribution the the signature van dijk uh diagonal 30 40 yards very direct to a on running salah or mane henderson was providing that that sort of danger um and i'm just i'm just so impressed that henderson can still do that at his age um it's just fantastic to see I will I will say that Allison uh you know clearly made two egregious errors and there's not much more to say about that. Chris I'd actually argue that he made three errors because I genuinely think if, yeah for Foden's goal he he's sitting down he sh- if he stands up it hits him in the chest. Well, I four, think that's true in the build up to the second goal. Okay. Well I I uh the when i'm coaching goalkeepers the first thing i always say is never fall back if you're going to fall fall forwards right 
but there are times when 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 a ball is coming at you at 70 miles per hour that even a, even a world-class keeper like Allison is going to fall to his back. I will tell you this. Here's the case where I, I don't, there is no excuse for what, uh, what Allison's, what happened to Allison. I will tell you this. Attacking players are, are wising up to those, really driving down into those half spaces. We are forcing the keeper to have to cover that near post shot. And what's happening is when they have to shift over, if you take the set position away from the keeper, it's almost like kryptonite for Superman. They can't dive. They can't kick stave because they're over on the near post. They're starting to quickly shuffle over. They don't have a clear sight line of what's, what's happening. And then bam. Um, you know, I, I will say that Allison, in terms of the, the passing, I, I just want to give another shout out to Man City in their pressing where they really closed uh, passing options. And there's something about having a, a fast striker coming at you. It's another thing to happen when it's Phil Foden and Raheem Sterling, who seem to have an extra gear where keepers just don't have enough time to react. Now, clearly he has to practice putting it in the stands. And as Klopp said, that's the reason why we have stands is so the goalkeeper can hit him there when he needs to. So he, but he's so used to, he doesn't see Phil Foden and Raheem Sterling in every game. So I guess what's going to be interesting is the next morning. He knows he made these terrible mistakes. What's the bounce back, right? And I, I'm pretty confident he's going to do just fine that you learn from those mistakes. You you break it down. You look at the video again, uh, again and again and again. You walk away with some key learnings, and then you forget about those individual experiences, because a the confidence management of a goalkeeper is so important. It is for every player, no question, but particularly for a goalkeeper that only gets four or five opportunities a game to get some work in, right? So. I'm going to be fascinated because um, Liverpool has got experience with goalkeepers never coming back, right? So I don't think that Allison will be the next Karius, and I don't think Allison's going to be at Besticas anytime soon. But it's just one of those instances where Man City completely closed out what his options were and forced him to do things that he just wasn't used to doing. And the idea of a Brazilian keeper kicking it into the stands is, is completely foreign to him, I imagine. And he got burned badly, not once, but twice for that. So interesting. It'll be interesting to see if we see Allison with any confidence issues going forward. Um, if you look at his prevented goals per 90, or preventing goals for the season, because of that, he's fallen back to about zero. So he's par for the course, given the expected goals against for what that's worth, right? And that's good, right? Um, there's some exceptions to that, but but Allison is kind of where he needs to be on that. Um, so let's go ahead and turn our attention to um, the legitimate next contender, right? Um, Liverpool has fallen to fourth place, 10 points back. Seems like very hard with 18 games left 
them being able to make a hard run. They would more or less have to win out and Man City would have to stumble. But let's talk about Man United. They're kind of five points off, kind of two and a half games with 18 games. Is there something there? 15 games, Chris. 15 games. Okay. So let's talk about Man United's week. You know, they they took care of – let's see. They they, um, tied Everton, which was a bit of a surprise. They won a bit earlier in the week. What's – Tell us what, what the narrative is there, Arshel. I mean, I think saying that they won it a little bit earlier in the week is, is grossly misunderstating the fact that they they hit the, uh, the <laughs> they sort of hit the record for the biggest Premier League victory ever. I knew you were going to bring that up, Arshel. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I know. I'm just saying. Which, so well, and here's the crazy thing. People aren't giving Man United the credit for full nine on goals, much like they aren't giving Southampton the, the blame for losing by nine goals. It just seems like... Yep, that happened. Let's. I mean, is uh, maybe it's because there's just not enough time. There's 20 games, but it just doesn't seem like a big deal to anybody. I think. Yeah, I think a big reason is the fact that it happened midweek, and there was a game. I mean, there were games that day, the next day, and and United also played like three or four days after that. So it's just that the narrative is moving so quickly, and also I think it's just been such a crazy season that yeah, I mean. Villa beat Liverpool 7-2, United won 6-1. Uh, sorry, United lost 6-1 at home to Spurs. So what's a 9-0 victory in the grand scheme of things in this season? We've seen so many crazy results already. So, but yeah, I mean, that game, that 9-0 game was brilliant in terms of how, I mean, United were ruthless. They went for more goals, even though they were 4-0 up. They were um, a man up at that point. I mean, they've been a man up for the entirety of the game almost because uh, Alexander Yankovic gets sent off in the first minute, but they didn't let up. Um, I think Ole made a couple of changes at the break to save some legs. He, uh, he took Cavani and Luke Shaw off and played Fred at left back. But I mean, against 10 men, that's I don't think that's that much of a problem. And they kept attacking and they scored a bunch of goals. And you would have thought that that would have led to a lot of confidence at the club and, and throughout the team. And I think they started the game against Everton really well. Uh, Went 2-0 up at the break. I think Bruno Fernandes' goal was absolutely brilliant. He, he was able to manufacture just a little bit of space and then the, the finish to be able to get that loop with that power from the sort of angle that he took the shot into the top corner was magnificent. Um, Cavani also obviously scored. So United were in a good place at halftime and then they sort of, I mean, I wouldn't say imploded, but it's the sort of defensive mistakes we've seen so much so many times from Man United where, um, I mean, they've been vulnerable from set pieces. I think it's only Leeds and um, I can't remember the other teams, but United have conceded the most goals from set... I mean, I think the second or third most goals from set pieces this season. They've uh, already conceded, I believe, uh, 30 goals, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 30 goals, which is... I mean, City have conceded 14 goals. So even though United have scored 49 goals and obviously that that's been given a big boost by that 9-0 win. It's the goals that they're conceding that's a problem. Um, the first goal, I think David De Gea, he, he really should be, shouldn't be palming that, that shot or cross that Calvert-Lewin makes into the path of the Kure who rolls it into an empty net. He needs to do better there. Even though I thought Maguire does get caught for pace by Calvert-Lewin, but he did a good job in keeping Calvert-Lewin wide and keeping him at an angle from where he couldn't really take a direct shot at goal. And that was the only thing he could have done, you know, to sort of try and induce an error from De Gea, which was what happened. 
Um, the second goal, I think McTominay was too deep. He should have been out covering and blocking the shot from uh, James Rodriguez in the box. And I mean, he's in line with Maguire and uh, Lindelof, who are the United centre backs for some reason, which gave uh, Rodriguez time and space to take a touch and hit it. And then for the final goal, Maguire. I think needs to do better in terms of marshalling his line, and De Gea again makes an error where it's the straight sh- shot in at the net, but he lets it go under him. And this is and this the and this was very similar to the goal that United conceded against RB Leipzig in the Champions League, which knocked them out of the Champions League. Justin Kluivert uh, got through, and again, I mean, it was a similar sort of situation from a set piece where he was again able to score. De Gea tries to save with his legs, and it goes under him. So. And but I mean more than the errors, it's the game management that annoys me because it's not the first time that United have had a lead in a game and then have struggled towards the last few minutes to hold on to that lead. Um, they conceded a, a late equaliser to Leicester after coming under pressure. They weren't able to manage that game well. They got lucky against Aston Villa. I remember at Old Trafford. I remember Eric Bailly making a last-ditch block and with like almost the last action of the game, and United ended up winning that game. But they'd come under pressure in that game. Away to Fulham, which they won two-one. Ruben Loftus-Cheek had a huge chance, which he missed at the end of the game, which could have, uh, you know, uh, tied the game for Fulham. Um, Burnley as well. I remember where again there were a number of crosses that United had to keep defending. Here, it was again. I mean, ninety-four minutes gone, four minutes of stoppage time. It's almost up. United have the kick in their own half, and they end up instead of De Gea kicking it towards the corners where one of the united players could have just taken it towards the corner held it held off a player maybe got a corner and then seen the game out it's hit towards the center of the pitch the ball comes back tuanzebe makes a stupid foul and then all 10 of everton's players including the goalkeeper are able to get into the box and cause a situation where united concede so it's the game management that's been a problem all throughout the season not just in this game united have come close Losing or drawing games where they were getting points on a number of occasions, and this time it came uh, to you know sort of bite them. And I think Ole was spot on post match when he said, "I mean, I don't think he said this post match, but he said this over the last week where he where um, he said that United aren't title contenders." And I think that that does apply because it's the mentality; it's not the ability as such. These players are good enough to win a league title, but I don't think they have the mentality yet. The the that instinct that you need to see out wins to to you know um, battle out against uh, teams that are pressuring you uh, towards the end of games and have the intelligence to to keep the ball and maneuver it so that the opposition isn't able to sort of create a chance when you're when you're leading and I think that's why I mean it, it is a lot of progress from last season United are a lot closer to to Liverpool and City but. I would be extremely surprised with the win title from here because I mean they're obviously five points behind Liverpool. Uh, sorry, behind City already. City have a game in hand, which which is against Everton. But I mean, if they win that, they go eight points clear, and I, I can't see United clawing that back. So for me, yes, progress from last season. If United finished anywhere second or third, but within a ten point gap of the eventual title winners, who it looks like will be City. But I don't think they're title contenders, and and the game against Everton showed us why. So Dre. You know, I, I know that Athletic has recent did an article today on whether Calvani should be the starter. And uh, for the record, I've been saying that for for some time. Um, I think Calvani should, and and the case really is that he's getting half the minutes that Fernandez and Rashford, uh, but he's got six goals behind um, uh, Rashford's 
eight goals and Fernandez is seven goals. So it seems like you could make a case for Calvani being a starter. Of course, he's 33 and Martial's 25. So there's a case to, to kind of keeping the youth movement together. How do you see what should be happening in that situation? Um, I mean, I think when you mention those numbers, I think it kind of answers the question. He's been very good coming off of the bench and having an impact for United and changing the game for them. And I think that has to have its value as well as uh, having him on the field from the beginning. I think um, when you have somebody like Martial who's a bit younger, he's got more in his legs, he'll help you be able to, to press and make all those runs in behind and whatnot. Um, I think that's important to start the game off. And then when you have a player like Cavani coming off the bench who's got loads of experience, he's a goal scorer, um, I d- he's realistically at his age in the Premier League, I don't think he's going to give you consistent 90s anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me personally, I've, I've, I've liked, not because I don't want to see him start, but I think I've liked him coming off the bench for the team just to, you know, from what he's given. I, I can't remember the the specific game, but there was a game recently where he came off the bench and um, I believe he scored and was involved in an, another goal. Uh, I remember it happened of, uh, maybe a month or two ago against, I think it was Southampton. Southampton, I think. You're right, right. Um, he yeah, scored so twice. He, exactly. So he, he's had his impacts coming off the bench and I think that has to have its value. And Chris, just a point there, I mean, Fernandez has scored 13 goals. Where are you getting the seven goal figure from? <laughs> oh, sorry. I, unless, I, you're not I, counting, I, unless you're not counting penalties. Uh, that's exactly right. <laughs> Uh, I, as a, as a goalkeeper, you know, I don't, I have zero respect for penalty kicks and we should move back to the NASL 35 yard one-on-one. Dribbling shoot. Yeah. So I won't, I won't even use, use the P word, uh, in, 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 in public, uh, when it comes to that, it should be breakaways. So, um, well, good. Well, let's turn our attention to Lester. Um, seems like a fairly quiet week for them. Uh, and and quiet in that they they beat Fulham and that they tied Wolves zero zero and one win one tie without Vardy, I would imagine is a good week for Leicester City. What's your sense on their prospects, Harshal? Yeah, I mean they've been doing okay without Vardy. I thought the the sort of system that Brendan Rodgers was using without Vardy, where he was using again almost similar to City in the sense that it was almost like a false nine. I was a Perez would play there. You'd see uh, James Madison almost play as a false nine. Mm, uh, even Harvey Barnes sort of play centrally. But uh, I think in the last couple of games, he's actually started Kelechi Hinacho as a, as a proper number nine, as a proper striker. So they were doing that, I think, in the Leeds game and a couple of games before that. But in the last couple of games, there was a proper number nine who was playing. And yeah, I, I think the Wolves game especially, they struggle for creativity and that's something I thought would be a problem for, Le- for Leicester earlier on in the season where, I mean, if you looked at number, uh, at metrics and numbers, they weren't really creating too many chances. They were really efficient in terms of taking the chances that they were creating, but the volume of chances was not that high. So that, I think we saw a little bit of that against Wolves where it finished goalless, not too many opportunities. I mean, arguably Wolves had the best chance of the game. Fabio Silva had a one-on-one with Casper Schmeichel, which Schmeichel saved with his foot. And it just brushed his foot and went past the post. Otherwise, I mean, it was a brilliant chance for Fabio Silva. So, um, and Vardy actually, again, towards the end of the game, he'd come on. He he had a header which he missed. Where I mean, you would have thought he would have at least put it on target. So, you can say that. I mean, they did miss Jamie Vardy in that sense. And maybe if he played for the entire game, they might have snatched a goal. But yeah, 
they've they're probably um i'd say decently happy with where they are third place two points behind united three points clear of liverpool so we saw them sort of fall off from this sort of position last season where they were in the top four around the halfway mark and then they completely fell off over the second half of the season to finish fifth i'm hoping that doesn't happen this time around so yeah a champions league spot definitely i think leicester should be in the top four by the end of the season super well let's turn our attention to the um the tuchel revolution um again probably we'd characterize it as as a quiet week um they did have a nice win against tottenham and we can kind of get into the uh the rabbit hole of of tottenham in a bit but then they took care of business against sheffield united uh it was 2-1 um i guess the scoreline l- looks closer than than what it actually was but you factor in the weather you factor in the pitch you know a, a win is a win and I, i imagine tuchel will, will run on what are you seeing that's tactically interesting going on at chelsea harshell and what do you see the evolution moving towards oh it's been extremely interesting tactically because it's a complete departure from what frank lampard was trying to do i mean tuchel's come in and imposed a very uh, it's a different way of playing but he's he's a thomas tuchel's a very good example of a manager who's sort of used or he tries to have concepts that are sort of the best of both i mean if you look at uh, the way football has evolved tactically at the top level over the last 10 or 15 years it's the sort of possession based uh, philosophy that pep guardiola is considered the the prophet of or, or the master of and then you've had the high pressing high energy um, counter pressing style that that jurgen klopp has advocated and it's basically been a clash between these two styles which is why i mean when klopp and guardiola arrived in the premier league around the same time it was thought that i mean it would be a great sort of rivalry and you'd see a direct clash between them again after their time at bayern and dortmund but tuchel is someone who who's incorporated the best of both of these elements his teams keep the ball really well and we're seeing that with chelsea they've they've i think averaged around 60 65% possession in in the games they've played so far the f- uh, four games they've played under tuchel so far um but there's also a, an emphasis on winning the ball back immediately if you after you've lost it and it's Uh, the way he's using these players is very interesting he's gone to a back 3 um cesar aspilicueta is the sort of third center half thiago silva obviously someone he played uh, who played under tuchel at psg was the sort of central presence in that back 3 but he's he got injured in the last game so andreas christensen has come in but um the the, the basic sort of uh, principles stay the same where it's the back 3 he's got wing backs Callum Hudson-Odoi and and Ben Chilwell started as the wing backs in the first game but Marcus Alonso came in did really well scored goal scored a, a goal in the game against Burnley um we've seen Reece James come in on the right side as the right wing back Jorginho and uh Mateo Kovacic have been almost ever present as the two central midfielders and their job is to keep moving the ball quickly as quickly as possible to take it from the center backs and keep moving it to to the attackers and out wide Mason Mount has done really well as a number 10 sort of player in in the hole and the attacking shape has sort of um it's it's moved from a, a one and a two where it's one number 10 and two strikers to 
or he's played sort of two number 10s and one striker so in the game against sheffield united for example it was the former where mason mount was a number 10 and you had timo werner and olivier giroud as the strikers but for example in the game against wolves which is his first game in charge it was the other way around where you had giroud as a as a solo sort of central uh, lone striker and kai havertz and hakim ziyech playing as sort of two number 10s playing in the half space so yeah it's it's been it's interesting and it's it's a lot of i wouldn't say a lot of fun but it's certainly more attractive to watch than how lampard used to play because there's always width there's always someone between the lines looking to receive the ball they play quickly they look to try and get the ball into forward areas as quickly as possible and i'm not saying that they're direct but the the movement is sharp the movement and the positioning is such to as to um you know uh take advantage of those dangerous spaces and we and even against in the game against spurs i thought they played really well i think 1-0 was a bit of i mean yes they didn't really create too many chances so 1-0 in that sense is indicative of how the game was but they controlled the game i mean i don't think spurs had too much of a uh, uh, a chance of doing anything from an offensive point of view other than in the last 20 minutes or so so yeah in overall i think chelsea fans will be very happy with how tuchel's gone so far he's picked up 10 um, 10 points from the last from excuse me the 12 points that he uh, that he could have picked up uh, in uh, four games in charge and i think it'll be interesting to see how he plays against the bigger teams or like for example when he comes up against liverpool city even united i think those games are on the horizon it'll be interesting to see how how those games go because still now he's all the teams he's uh, faced our teams which have looked to sit back and concede possession to chelsea it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic works when he comes up against teams who want as much of the ball or want i mean more of an equal footing in the game so that's what i'm going to look out for so if you look at the score sheets of the last few games aspilaqueta alonso georgino mount uh, are we in the 20 1920 or 2018 19 seasons but it seems like there's almost a retro particularly with Jorginho who was specifically bought, brought in to Chelsea because of sorry ball fell out of favor and now may ba- be back in favor dre as a player how do you manage through the waves of changes like this i mean how how, how do you how do you mentally stay up for for all these sort of changes Well, honestly, that's just that's part of the business. Uh, that's just something that you have to adjust to, and it's something you you learn to begin to adjust to early on in your career because you're always going to have managers that don't favor you, and then you're going to have some that do. So, um, there's always an understanding, especially when a team's not doing as well as it should be, that the managers are going to be the first to go as opposed to the players. And, um, so you just have have to have that that fresh mindset every single day. You're going to go in. You're going to do your best to make yourself better regardless of what's going on um and always look to keep improving and then obviously when a new manager comes in uh that's a fresh look a fresh chance for you to have an impression and um i think obviously like you said these guys have have taken this opportunity to to showcase themselves and they're reaping the benefits right now and hopefully that continues for them because i think chelsea's a team that has way more potential than what we've seen so far and they've definitely underperformed as the season's gone on and i think the schedule is going to be a little kind to to tuckel in that they're going to play barnsley chelsea and then southampton and then really on february 23rd with champions league they're going to play atletico 
and then Man United and then Everton. So uh, it's still tough games ahead, but things start to really toughen up. At least he gets another week or 10 days to spend some time with his team to figure out, uh, you know, what's where, where everybody's supposed to be going. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if, if Vanner really starts to come into form there. So let's chat about West Ham, even though uh, uh, David Seymour is not able to join us. Um, they did have a productive weekend that they beat Aston Villa three to one. Uh, and then they, I guess somewhat surprisingly um, tied Fulham 0-0, though there was a red card um, which led to that um, outcome. Harshell, any any quick thoughts on on the Aston Villa-West Ham game? Um, I mean, West Ham are basically, again, not, nothing new than what we've seen over the last few weeks from them. Uh, they, they obviously did really well in that uh, game against Villa managing to score three goals to be honest is a is a great I mean, not great but it's a it's a good achievement against this villa side who've actually become quite good defensively they've emmy uh, emmy martinez who's coming at, at goalkeeper has done really well their defense has uh tightened up they're, they're doing much better as a team villa than last season so being able to beat them 3-1 is a is a is a good uh, statement, but although I mean, I think again for two goals, two of those three goals, I think Martinez was at fault. He he lets relatively tame shots that are straight at him go through him. Um, uh, Jesse Lingard, who's on loan from Man United, made a huge impact in that game, scoring the two goals. So um, I, I expect to see him sort of playing a more prominent role in the lineup in the place of say Pablo Fornals, who has looked a bit off color. But I think the rest of the lineup will stay the same. But the key for West Ham is going to be to keep Mikel Antonio fit because they didn't sign a striker in the January window. They've let Sebastian Aller go to Ajax. So they do not have anybody. They literally don't have a, a replacement or a backup for Mikel Antonio at centre and centre forward. I mean, if he gets injured or suspended, I don't know. I mean, maybe Andrea Molenko will play at number nine and he's obviously a winger. He's not a number nine. Maybe Jesse Lingard will play as a false nine or something like that. But they don't have proper center forward in that squad other than Antonio. So the key to their season, I think, is going to be to keep him fit. And he's notoriously injury prone. So we'll have to wait and see how how that... And I think he's already... I think there's a chance that he might not play um, in the FA Cup game against Man United this week because there's... Uh, I think he he might just have picked up an injury in, in of some sort over the weekend. So that'll be something for, for uh, you know, for... Uh, David Moyes to monitor and hopefully it doesn't turn out to be too serious because an injury to Antonio I think will derail their season otherwise again they're, they're one of the surprise contenders for Champions League uh, and who knows this is again this has been a crazy season they're just a point behind Liverpool they level on points with Chelsea so they definitely have a chance of sneaking into the top four so it'll be interesting the good news about their schedule going forward is they have a week between matches the bad news is they have to play Man United, Sheffield United, Tottenham, Man City, Leeds, Man United, Arsenal, Wolves, Leicester City. <laughs> That's by April 10th. So you want to talk about contender for who has one of the most brutal um, set of matches going forward. Uh, I guess the only thing you can say is there's no Euro Europa matches to uh, to divide their attention, but that is a, a real murderer's row uh, in terms of 
uh, who to play uh, in the upcoming games. Um, let's talk about, spend just a few minutes and, and have a chat about Everton. Um, they took care of business against Leeds two to one, um, though uh, it seems like they did fairly well in the first half of that uh, and then really bunkered down and survived the Leeds onslaught. And then Man United and Everton, which we chatted about, hats off to Everton for kind of um, fighting the good fight in that second half uh, and equalizing late. Any any general notes about Everton, Harshal? They've had a bit of, and you know, they've had a bit of an up and down run. And I think in recent games, and I think that's been the story of this season as well. Other than the first few games where they went on a on a winning streak and they were top of the Premier League for, uh, for for some time, which was right at the start of the season for the first few games. But since then, it has been a bit up and down with them where they've they've struggled to put together a run of wins or a, a run of positive results. It's always been a couple of wins and then a draw and a loss or that two steps forward, one step back. And, and, you know, that sort of a season for them. But it's just that it is such a tight season that they've managed to keep pace with the top four again. They've and they've got a cup. Uh, I think a couple of games in hand on on a lot of the teams in the top uh, for running. So even if they get maybe even four points from those games, they they go up. And I mean, in the current situation, they could go above the likes of Liverpool. So it's it's a case of I think them needing to now kick on in the next few games and put that run of results together because they've also managed to get players back now who were injured. James Rodriguez has had injury problems, but he's come back. Calvert Lewin. Looks like he's found his his scoring boots again, and even he had a bit of um, an injury issue. Uh, they've got their fullbacks back. You know, Luca Dini is back. Um, Seamus Coleman is back on the bench. I think he'll be starting games pretty soon. Uh, Richarlison is back, so they've managed to get key players um, back in the team. And I, I mean, if they want to be in contention for the Champions League or even Europa League, I think now is the time where they need to sort of go on a bit of a run and given how tight the table is that could right you know up there amongst the top four or five teams i gotcha well let's start turn our attention to tottenham you know they had that uh gut punch of losing to chelsea 1-0 um they dispatched west brom fairly easily with a 2-0 win dre what's what's your take on tottenham's where they are right now you know and and you know we've everyone's talked about the over reliance on Kane. What can the workarounds be going forward in that for them? Uh, it's tough. I mean, I think I've always felt like Spurs is a team that was heavily reliant on both him and Son, um, at least attacking wise. Uh, we've seen them. I think they lost three in a row: uh, Liverpool, Brighton, and Chelsea, which is tough for them. But I think similarly to the teams around them, they've kind of. Um, I don't. I don't want to say fallen off, but I, I think it's kind of what would be expected in a quote-unquote normal season. I mean, I think earlier on in the year uh, when they were higher up the table, uh, it, it just didn't seem too sustainable to me, and particularly the way that they were going about it. So I think now, you know, having to having to adjust. I mean, the Premier League is all about adjustment. Through a thirty-eight game season, teams are going to look for ways to to cancel out what you do well, and you're going to have to be able to you know, find other ways to, to create opportunities, score goals, whatever the case may be. So I think that's important for them going forward to, you know, continue looking for results and whatnot. But um, 
yeah, I'm not too surprised by by where they are and what's going on. I think I've always felt like they're going to struggle a little bit with the teams above them that are quote unquote better than them. Uh, you know, the cities, Liverpool, Chelsea, and uh, you know, comfortably dispatch the teams that are below them just based off individual quality. Mm-hmm. What do we turn our attention towards their bitter, most bitter rivals, Arsenal? Uh, Arsenal had a tough week. They lost against Wolves 2-1, and they also lost against Aston Villa 1-0. What's going on? What's your take on what's happening with Arteta's team? Honestly, I'm not sure. I thought I thought they were going through a little patch where things seemed to be looking up, and you know they were they were at least getting results. They were performing pretty well. Uh, they lost to Southampton in the FA Cup, but that was their first loss since I think like the middle of December or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then they've came and they've lost back to back games. I mean, the Villa game I, I didn't think was a very good performance. They obviously conceded very early on uh, with uh, an error, a, a defensive mistake, like miscommunication that leads to a goal. And but even after that, I mean, they they didn't particularly create any chances. Villa was creating a flurry of chances going forward, and um, I think in the end, honestly, Arsenal was probably lucky that it was just one. So I'm not really sure what caused these last two results after, you know, such a, such a good run of form, but, and, you know, maybe it's just a congestion of games and and they're going to look to turn the page going forward. And and hopefully that's the case, but I don't know. I I never seem to have any answers for for the Arsenal mystery. Yeah. I I think that's, if we kind of get back to that, epistemological problem with soccer is that it's an unfair game and sometimes you think it's going to be a and it turns out to be b and sometimes there's not any good justification for that so um i want to turn our attention to someone a little farther down the table which is newcastle proud club probably in the level of a aston villa or an everton you know they've they've been able to to win some important games um, recently. They've been able to beat a, a Southampton, um, even with, with the red card that they had, but they lost before Newcastle before that in Everton and Leeds. Um, you know, what's going on in Newcastle that you see is happening different in Harshell and are, are brighter days ahead of them now? I don't know if brighter days are ahead, but... I mean, there's certainly been change in the sense that obviously everything we talk about Newcastle has to be couched around the fact that the ownership is, I don't want to say the word toxic, but it's just something that that envelops all sort of facets facets of, of Newcastle United. And I mean, Mike Ashley has been trying to sell the club for nearly a decade now. The, the deal with the Saudi consortium that was supposed to have gone through this summer ran into a lot of problems with regard to the the involvement of the Saudi government in the in the in the fund that was buying it and the piracy that had been ongoing in in Saudi Arabia with regard to the Premier League's feed which was being pirated from the Qatar broadcasters and there's a whole uh, geopolitical angle there as well with Saudi Arabia blockading Qatar along with other other Arab nations and all of that so that's that's a whole other podcast episode to be honest but point, the point is that Newcastle has been a very unhappy place for a long time. Rafael Benitez was able to bring some, a little bit of, of cheer to fans just because of the fact that they were able to snag such a high profile manager and that he promised or sort of there was the promise of, 
or the potential to to go to bigger uh, to to you know loftier heights with him at the helm if he was given the backing that he needed he wasn't which is why he left and then you brought in steve bruce who's a very underwhelming appointment when they did make uh when, i mean when they hired him because he, he is a, a jody he is someone from newcastle but he's not at the level of a benitez when you look at managerial um deputation and managerial achievement and they survived in the premier league last season their aim looks to be survival this season as well which is i mean it's not befitting a club of newcastle's size to be honest but i mean there there's been a few there's been some signs of encouragement over the last three games and that's sort of coincided with the fact that um newcastle have brought in graham jones as an assistant manager from burnmouth and it looks like he's had an impact because immediately they've changed formation i mean under for most of this season under bruce they've played with a back three which is basically a back five and and a sort of 5-4-1 or 5-3-2 at times extremely defensive and and reactive in nature but the last three games they've played with a midfield diamond and two strikers up front one of which is actually a winger so it's been callum wilson and and either miguel almiron or alan san maximan as the second forward and that's brought a very different dynamic to the side they've been a lot more attacking they've they've actually created a lot of chances in in those games and i mean obviously they they've won two out of those three games but they've also become somewhat defensively solid because the diamond just inherently helps clog the center of the pitch because with they're like three midfielders in there at the best of time so the defense is also being put, protected a little better so i mean they they're not going to get relegated because the bottom three are just so far off the pace that um i mean i don't think anybody else other than the current bottom three will get relegated uh, newcastle are 10 points clear of the bottom three at the moment even though they've played a game more than than fulham for example so they're not going to get relegated but i mean and i think maybe the 16th now maybe somewhere on 12th 13th is the, is the height of the, uh, the ambition this season which is good enough obviously for the for the ownership but i think the fans deserve better but yeah in in the if you were to look at just the last three games there's a lot that's improved for newcastle over the last over the entire season you know when you compare it to the last three games good well let's do a, a series of quick hot takes of games that are coming up this weekend uh and just quick little sound bites on it uh dre what's your take on leicester city liverpool what's going to happen there in in your mind uh i think leicester city sucker punches liverpool a little bit um Liverpool's been struggling as of late, as we've seen, uh, struggling to create goals, and I think I think Leicester's probably going to come away with a win there, maybe maybe two nil, especially considering they lost earlier this year to Liverpool, and I know they're not happy about that. Two nil, Harshal. What's your pick on Leicester City Liverpool? I think Liverpool. I mean, we'll see some sort of a reaction from Liverpool. They have a free week. There's no FA Cup game for them, so a rare free week this season where they can concentrate on training and. I would not be surprised to see Ozan Kabak and you know Ben Davies if not both of them at least one of them make their debut at center back for Liverpool because I mean there's no point in bringing in two center backs on on deadline day as they did and I mean if you're not going to play them so I think uh, Klopp is going to use this week to to get them up to speed with how he wants uh, his center backs to play and one if not both of them will make their debut which should allow Fabinho and Henderson to play in midfield and that again should then allow Liverpool to get back to some of the rhythm that they've lost because players are playing in unfamiliar positions so and just generally i think there will be a reaction to the fact that they've lost 4-1 to City at home so 
I, I think line. Liverpool. I am going to go for the two, two one, two one to Liverpool. I want to be more original, but I think it's also two one. I think Henderson stays at center back. Fabinho moves up. New um, center back um, introduction, and uh, we'll see what happens. Could could go to three one, um, as far as I can tell. How about Man City Tottenham, Dre? What's going to happen there? Uh, I like the four Man Cities in now. I think I think they probably win that game. Um, obviously, Tottenham's going to look to defend like they always do, but. Yeah, I mean, with how Man City's looked at the back as well, pretty sturdy. I, I don't think they can see it. I think maybe one, maybe maybe a one-zero game there. Mm. Harshal, what's your prediction of the game? Yeah, uh, City definitely for the win. Maybe two-three nil, I'd say, because Spurs, the the way they've been defending, especially not just against Chelsea, just generally, the fact that Mourinho is always that sort of try and shut up shop and get a goal on the counter. I don't think it's working, even though Kane did come back and score a goal and Son also scored against West Brom. So I expect both of them to be fit and play that game. But City have just been too good over the last month or so. Or not just that, maybe a bit longer, two months or so. So yeah, I, I'm going to go for maybe 3-0 to City. All right. I'll split the difference. 2-0, Man City. Um, let's see. There are some interesting games to keep an, uh, an eye out in terms of competitiveness. Brighton, Aston Villa is worth a, a good look. Southampton, Wolves. Um, how about this for the battle of the uh, the mid-table? Arsenal leads. Dre, what do you think is going to happen? Mm, I think that game ties 2-2. Two, 2-2. Two. Two, two. <laughs> All right. Uh, Harshal, you got any, any thoughts on that game? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty difficult one to call, actually. I can see why Dre took, took some time because, <laughs> I mean, both Liverpool and Ars- oh, sorry, Leeds and Arsenal have been a bit erratic with their form. And yeah, it'll probably be a draw, but it'll be a, it'll be a score draw. Like, it won't be a nil-nil, definitely. I can see both teams scoring goals, but yeah, I'd probably go for a one-all, I guess. Oh, gosh, I wish I could be more original, but the truth is Leeds tends to beat the teams that are below them, go 500 with the teams around them, and uh, lose with the teams that are above them. Arsenal is a little more unpredictable. I'm just going to be a little bit different um, because I don't want to seem me too on everything. I think Leeds wins 2-1. So um, why don't we go ahead and leave the pod there for this week? We are sponsored by the Premier League Guide, Moneyball for Football, Opposition Analysis Plus Eye Candy. The current update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Please subscribe to Thinking Fan Football Club on YouTube and your favorite podcast platform. For this week, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.